Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at adces24.org. Hello and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm your host, Jody Lavin Tompkins. I'm a nurse and certified diabetes care and education specialist and Director of Accreditation and Content Development at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. Today we're talking with Dr. Jennifer Goldman about diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You'll learn about the link between these two diseases and the options available in the treatment toolbox. This podcast episode and the participation of Dr. Jennifer Goldman is sponsored by Amron Pharma Incorporated, makers of Vasipa, also known as Icosapin ethyl. So Dr. Goldman, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jody. Thanks for having me, and please call me Jennifer. I'm curious to hear how you became involved with diabetes care and education, and wondering if you could share a bit of your background and what draws you to the intersection of diabetes and cardiovascular risk. You know, it's interesting. Next month, I will have been a pharmacist for 31 years, which is shocking to me. I went to Mass College of Pharmacy, now known as MCPHS University, and I got my BS degree there and then worked for a while as a pharmacist. And then I went back, got my PharmD degree and did a residency at the Boston VA Medical Center. After I took a faculty position at MCP and also a faculty appointment at Tufts Medical School in the Department of Family Medicine and started a practice in family medicine with 24 family medicine residents and eight faculty physicians. And this is where I served as a preceptor and clinical pharmacist. And this was 25 years ago. So when we're thinking about how we manage diabetes and cardiovascular disease 25 years ago, we certainly had less drugs, but we also had less evidence. So while I was there in family medicine, this is where I had rotations for doctor of pharmacy students and residents and fellows and really kind of grew up there. So I started seeing patients primarily with chronic disease state management. And that led to significantly more people seeing me for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And so after five years, I decided to become a CDE. Now it's a certified diabetes care and educational specialist, CDCES, and then board certified in advanced diabetes management. And then more years would go by and I started teaching more and collaborating more. And this is where my scholarship and speaking and so forth just naturally evolved. So I stayed with that practice for about 15 years. And for the last nine years, I've been in a private practice, also a collaborative practice, where I also see patients and work with other providers for chronic disease state management, particularly diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I still teach these topics at MCPHS University in the pharmacy program, but also in the physician assistant program. And so here we are 30 plus years later. 
Well, that's awesome experience you have to bring to our listeners. And since you're focused on chronic disease management, especially diabetes and cardiovascular risk, can you explain to our listeners what the link between those two might be? Sure. And this is a conversation I have with students and residents and fellows, but also with people who come to see me. People don't die from diabetes directly. They die from cardiovascular disease. And these are staggering statistics. So adults are two to four times more likely to die from heart disease if they have diabetes versus if they don't have diabetes. 68% of people 65 and older die from some form of heart disease and 16% of people with diabetes die from stroke. So our message has evolved over the last few decades as we get more data and we have more evidence. And so we no longer just concentrate on glycemic management. So when I think back to when I started practicing, and probably when you did too, Jody, is we were very glycemic centric, where we just targeted blood sugars, and that was our main focus. And now because of the evidence and because of what we do know, we have to start focusing on these comorbidities and these disease states that actually cause these adverse cardiovascular events, heart attacks, stroke, and death. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is what actually contributes to the elevated risk for cardiovascular disease in people with diabetes. I think everyone would be interested to hear the latest about that. So when we say they don't die of hyperglycemia, they die from, literally it's from atherosclerosis. So we know that people who have diabetes, they have lipid abnormalities and these lipid abnormalities increase your risk of atherosclerosis leading to MIs and strokes and death. And so when you look at the lipid profile, what we see, and this is very typical, what we see is high triglycerides, high LDL, and low HDL. And this leads to your increased risk of heart disease. If you look at the NHANES data 2007 to 2014, it is known that there is a residual hypertriglyceridemia. So think about this. We're seeing these people. We are doing the right things. We put them on statins but hypertriglyceridemia remains. And so in that NHANES data, one fifth of US adults with diabetes still had hypertriglyceridemia and that's about 5.5 million people. So this includes people taking the statin who actually have well-managed LDL. So that hypertriglyceridemia continues and you have persistent cardiovascular risk. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I've seen that in my own practice as well. So what have we traditionally done to help our clients to help reduce their cardiovascular risk, knowing that there's this persistent risk and hyper, residual hypertriglyceridemia? So one of the things that we as diabetes care and education specialists often focus on is education and teaching people with diabetes about reducing their risk of complications especially with cardiovascular disease. So if we think about the seven key areas, the ADCES7 self-care behaviors, this is what we're often focusing on. And in particular, for example, purposeful exercise, increasing exercise. We know that the benefit that this has in cardiovascular disease issues and prevention in healthy eating and you know, better choices for your foods. We're looking at reducing risks. So traditionally, we're doing that education, but we're also using medications that lower LDL. 
this is what we've been doing, and that would be the statins. Well, are all of these interventions that you mentioned enough to lower the risk of cardiovascular disease, or is there something else we need to be thinking about? I think that what has been found, Jody, and what we have to remember is if you think about the NHANES data and you truly can appreciate the persistent risk that remains with hypertriglyceridemia, what we've been concentrating on, LDL reduction, as well as, of course, lifestyle changes, we have to really take that seriously. When we know we have evidence and, and there exists treatment that actually improves outcomes, we actually have to move forward that way. So we can't ignore triglycerides. And I think that what was important was in part, we just didn't have the evidence to support treating hypertriglyceridemia uh, with specific agents, but we do now. Now we have some evidence. Well, that's good to know. So we'd love to hear about what that evidence is and what it showed. So in terms of the indication, the SEPA is indicated in people on a maximally tolerated statin. So they're on the maximum statin dose that they can tolerate. And they have triglycerides greater or equal to 150 and established cardiovascular disease or diabetes with two or more risk factors. So the REDUCE IT trial, in which ethyl was recently studied, prior to that, any of the trials that looked at other agents, whether they be prescription fibrates, niacin, mixed omega-3s, or supplements, actually showed no beneficial cardiovascular outcomes with the statins. And when I'm talking about outcomes, what I'm specifically talking about is MACE outcomes. And MACE stands for Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events. And if you're familiar with some of the diabetes cardiovascular outcome trials, those were typically three-point MACE. And three-point MACE means non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and cardiovascular death. In the REDUCE IT trial, they're looking at five-point composite MACE. And so keeping in mind when we're looking at outcomes, these are the outcomes we're thinking about. So let me just tell you a little bit more about the trial, and I think it will make more sense to your audience. The REDUCE IT trial really was a landmark trial, and what it looked at was ethyl on the occurrence of MACE. And this population that was studied were adults who were taking a statin, and they had well-controlled LDL. The median baseline LDL was 75, but the triglycerides were 135 to 499. They had established cardiovascular disease, or diabetes and additional risk factors. And by the way, the trial duration was 4.9 years. So the primary endpoint is the five-point composite MACE that I referred to earlier, and that's non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, cardiovascular death, and also coronary revascularization and unstable angina requiring hospitalization. So that was the primary endpoint of this trial. The secondary endpoint of the trial was the first occurrence of three-point MACE, which was the non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, and cardiovascular death. So it was specifically designed to evaluate icosapentethyl in patients who, despite statin therapy and controlled LDL, remained at high risk for cardiovascular events. So in the placebo group, 28.3% of patients experience a primary endpoint which is the five-point MACE during the duration of the trial, even though they had well-controlled LDL. 
And I think that that's really key to remember. And that shows marked residual risk for cardiovascular events. In terms of the results, there was a 25% relative risk reduction of five-point MACE with a number needed to treat of 21 over five years. So when I'm talking about we have evidence now, this is really what I'm alluding to. Really, we're thinking about the number needed to treat. That's the number of patients that need to be treated over that period of time to prevent that outcome from occurring. So the lower the number needed to treat, the more beneficial that treatment is. And that's what we're looking at in terms of this evidence. So the benefit was actually shown across those triglyceride levels that actually suggests that it was regardless of the triglyceride lowering. So there's a pleiotropic effect going on with icosapenethyl. So we don't need to necessarily focus completely on that, but we need to pay attention to knowing this patient population. I want you to think about, and your listeners to think about your patient population. You have a person who has diabetes. They're being treated with a statin. You're doing all the right things in your toolkit with lifestyle changes and so forth, but they still have hypertriglyceridemia. That persistent risk still remains. And because we now have evidence, we can't ignore that. We can't pick and choose. So when we have someone in this population, we actually have an agent that decreases five-point MACE with that relative risk reduction, 25% in a and also a low number needed to treat. I feel, you know, myself, when I have a person in front of me, I'm looking at the risk reduction and I'm looking at what do I know? What do I know and what am I obligated to do? So Jennifer, it sounds like we really should be paying to this idea of risk reduction and not just focusing on triglyceride reduction. So that's really important for our listeners. In this trial that you just reviewed, the Reduce It trial, people always want to know if there are any adverse events that we should know about and how often they occurred. So can you review that for us briefly? Absolutely. As a pharmacist, of course, I'm always interested in adverse effects. And I'm always talking about this when I'm teaching students. We want to maximize efficacy and really minimize toxicity. So Vasipa is contraindicated in patients with a known hypersensitivity, so anaphylactic reaction to Vasipa or its components. It's not known if people with allergies to fish or shellfish are at an increased risk of an allergic reaction to Vasipa. So patients with allergies should discontinue if a reaction occurs. But the overall rates of adverse events and rates of serious adverse events leading to discontinuation of icosapenethyl or placebo actually didn't differ significantly from each other. So we have to really put this into perspective when we're looking at this. So let me give you some numbers. So in terms of the common adverse reactions in the trial, this is the incidence that were greater or equal than 3% or greater or equal than 1% is what's reported more frequently than placebo. So musculoskeletal pain was 4% versus 3%. Peripheral edema was 7% versus 5%. Constipation was 5% versus 4%. Gout, 4% versus 3%. 
but icosapent ethyl was associated with an increased risk of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter requiring hospitalization. And that was 3% versus 2%. It was increased in patients with a baseline, a previous history of AFib or flutter, and also increased risk of bleeding. And that was 12% versus 10%. And that incident was more in people who were receiving concomitant anticoagulants like aspirin or clopidogrel or warfarin. Patients receiving the SEPA and concomitant anticoagulants or antiplatelet agents should be monitored for bleeding. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for the summary and putting the evidence into context for our listeners. That was great. Now, I'd like to move on to just ask you to Tell our listeners what approach they might take to begin addressing cardiovascular disease and this persistent risk that seems to be there in people with diabetes. We need to really keep doing what we're doing. We're really good at it, right? We talk about everything that's in the toolkit, the ADCES 7 toolkit with our lifestyle changes and particularly, you know, food choices and healthy eating and physical activity. But we now have and we know of these MACE outcomes and the relative risk reduction in a trial with a low number needed to treat. So we need to look at our patient population, talk to people when they're sitting there, make sure they understand all the risk and benefits. And I really believe we need to offer ethyl to eligible people. But I think another thing that's important for everyone to understand that it's not acceptable to substitute something else for ethyl to reduce cardiovascular risk. So they're not interchangeable. ethyl is highly purified. It's highly purified EPA. It does not contain any DHA. So when we look at the other prescription products that may be a mix or the dietary supplements of fish oil, it is not appropriate to switch them from ethyl, which was studied in ethyl was the one that showed the relative risk reduction. These other agents were also studied, but they did not contribute or have any MACE outcomes. They may lower triglycerides, but without a beneficial cardiovascular outcome when added to a statin. So there was not a decrease in heart attacks and strokes and death. So we have to think about that. And one more thing, as a pharmacist, I can't let this go. I've got to remember to mention this, and it's traditionally, I, I think that's because I've worked in a lipid clinic during my residency, and we were putting our patients on fibric acids. So that was, at the time, it was gemfibrozil. And so the other fibric acid on the market is phenofibrate. These two agents lower triglycerides, and they do this very well. But the issue is that there is no beneficial MACE outcomes with these agents when taken with a statin. So there's no reduction in cardiovascular risk and there is no reduction in cardiovascular events. And that led the FDA to remove their recommendations for actually using these agents in patients on a statin. So it is no longer recommended. Additionally, other organizations like the American Diabetes Association no longer recommend the fibric acids for this population on statin therapy. So I think the bottom line, Jody, is we have the evidence. We need to do what's best for eligible people to reduce their risk of death and heart attacks and all the other, the five outcomes that we're thinking about. 
Jennifer, thanks. I mean, this is an important concept about where the evidence actually is with regard to triglyceride lowering. I'm sure that our listeners appreciate that. So diabetes care and education specialists really should make sure to address this persistent cardiovascular risk with the people they're seeing with diabetes and continue to promote risk-lowering lifestyles, treatments with statins, but also consider treatment with icosapen ethyl to anyone who's eligible. So are there any specific resources available for our listeners who are interested in learning more about this? Yes, actually there is. Amron just released a new tip sheet to help healthcare professionals counsel their clients with diabetes on the risk of cardiovascular disease. And they are great for listeners who are looking to expand their cardiovascular disease risk-lowering toolbox. And they're available to download and print. Great. We'll make sure to link to those tip sheets in the show notes, which will also be available at diabeteseducator.org forward slash podcast. Dr. Goldman, thanks again so much for joining us today and helping us spread the word about this important topic. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Today's episode and speaker was sponsored by Amarin Pharma Incorporated. To learn more about Vasipa and to access the full prescribing information, visit vasipa.com or vascepa.com. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.